This is Tina Douglas, and you're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast with your host, my husband, Liam Douglas. Enjoy! Photographer Goes Blind how photo mechanic was born and more greetings everybody you're listening to the liam photography podcast i'm your host liam douglas and this is episode 315 for sunday february 12th 2023 and today is super bowl sunday the philadelphia eagles versus the kansas city chiefs tune in at 6 30 today to see who's going to win the trophy for this past season and let's head on over now to Petapixel for the latest news stories for this week. Photographer forced to shut down her wedding business after going blind. A professional photographer was forced to give up her successful wedding business after being diagnosed with a rare eye disease that is causing her to go blind. Robin Lindman was an elite wedding photographer in Chicago at the top of her game when she received the devastating news that she was she has retinitis pigmentosa, or RP. The way RP works is you first lose your night vision, and then your peripheral vision keeps tunneling inward, Lindman tells Petapixel. Quote, my center vision is still very strong. However, I have lost almost all of my peripheral vision. Lindman was shooting 18 to 25 events per year and averaging $10,000 per wedding package by the end of her career, and her work graced the covers and pages of bridal and women's magazines. Quote, I documented some of Chicago's biggest weddings every season and worked with the most elite planners, she says. The talented photographer was able to carry on working for a number of years after her diagnosis, but the chaos of wedding began to take its toll. Quote, I was horribly embarrassed when I missed the outreach of a common handshake, bumped into little flower girls, or humiliatingly tripped over something that was outside my visual field range, she writes in Travel and Leisure. I could not bear the possibility of knocking over a wedding cake or bountiful floral arrangement, breaking another vendor's equipment, or worse, hurting someone. In 2019, Lindman made the hardest decision of her life and shuttered her business for good. Quote, I was a very high-end photographer charging a lot of money. I wanted to make sure that I left the brand that I built with integrity and could honestly say my work wasn't affected by vision loss. I didn't know how much longer I could guarantee that, and I wanted to leave on top. After closing the business in 2019, Lindman has traveled the world on and off. She bought a drone and enjoys capturing the exotic locations she visits alongside her family. Droning has been such a creative and comfortable transition for me because I can have my feet planted in one spot and see endless perspectives of our location, she says. My long-term goal was to publish a coffee table book with my images sharing our journey while having part of the proceeds going to fighting blindness. Lindman shares her travels and personal journeys on social media and still works as a photographer. Quote, I've been doing a lot of lifestyle branding photography, and I have additionally done content creation for some major brands, she says. I love droning because all of the chaos that piques my anxiety is limited. More of Lindman's work can be found on her wedding website, travel website, and Instagram. 
So it's good that she found something else that she could do that's still photography related. It's just really sad that she had to lose her eyesight and give up such a successful wedding photography business. Our thoughts and prayers definitely go out to you, Robin, in this troubling and trying time in your life. How Photo Mechanic was born at Super Bowl 32 in 1998. It was Sunday morning, January 25th, 1998, and I was in the Associated Press trailer in the parking lot of Qualcomm Stadium, San Diego. Last-minute preparations were underway for coverage of Super Bowl 32 between the Green Bay Packers and the Denver Broncos. Far versus Elway. Perfect. This was a big day for me and my fledgling company, Camera Bits, which was just me doing business as. AP was willing to give Photo Mechanics its first real exercise to cover this big game, even through PM wasn't for sale, even though PM wasn't for sale yet, and it was version 0.99, I recall. I was a bit surprised when Jim Deitz, my technology contact at AP, asked me to make just one last-minute change to Photo Mechanic. I laughed at him because this is definitely not standard protocol. Normally, everything is all set up and locked down by Saturday, and Sunday is just to get the job done. Making a new build of Photo Mechanic on game day sounded crazy to me. But Jim explained why it wasn't such a big deal and that he had faith in me. Back then, it was important for AP to include the words digital photo in some IPTC IPTC field. I can't remember which one. If the photo was taken by a digital camera versus film. Frankly, I think it was a be prepared warning to AP's members, newspapers, because the images from the 1.3 megapixel NC2000E camera were a bit low resolution, especially when the editors did a tight crop. But since AP's Super Bowl coverage was all digital by then, Jim asked me to just rubber stamp every photo that PM processed with this IPTC field, indicating a digital source. It was easy enough fix when we nerds call a one-liner, what we nerds call a one-liner. So I agreed and made a new build in the trailer on my laptop. Jim proceeded to test this build, but I had to give it a new new version number, and I was at 0.99, so I jokingly called it the Elway release because I was rooting for Denver. Project manager Howard Groves was not too happy to have to install the Elway release on all of the computers in the trailer, especially the laptops that were ready to leave for the stadium seats and end zone to accompany the fixed position photographers. Howard wasn't upset that I called it the Elway release, even though he was rooting for Green Bay. It was the last minute changes. But you have to get it right, and this would eliminate the chance of any NC2000E photos slipping into the system claiming to be film quality. These were definitely digital quality, which had a bad reputation back then. Good enough for the newspaper rag, apparently. Fortunately, everything went well as far as I could tell. Photographers on the field would have their 105 megapixel, my guess, PCM CIA hard disk rushed very carefully to the parking lot trailer by film runners in envelopes with pre-printed name of the photographer and their quick notes of what happened, uh, e.g. forced fumble on 20-yard line. These photos would get ingested on one of the four AP Piranha servers, Windows NT boxes with three PCM CIA card readers each. 
the discs erased and sent back to the photographers like clockwork. And sometimes the runners would have to swap out a freshly charged camera as well because the NC2000 and all Kodak DCS4XX cameras had a fixed battery. Considering the cost of these cameras is $17,950, but discounted to $16,950 for AP members, I thought it was strange to see several just sitting on a shelf in the trailer until I realized they were all being charged. The Piranha servers would ingest the photos into folders onto the AP server, Audrey, with the last name of the photographer, E.G. Martin, and a unique number based on a twin check sticker. The twin check stickers came from a roll that had pairs of sequential four-digit numbers that are used when developing film to maintain provenance. I thought it was funny that AP was still using film technology for digital, but it was all very well organized and efficient. The notes on the envelopes would help me find high-priority moments, and the combo photographer twin check number would give the editors the folder name, e.g. Martin-1234. The photos from the fixed position photographers, e.g. seated in the end zone, took very different trip to the trailer. Their trip was relatively immediate because it was wireless and no rumors or no runners were needed other than camera swap, of course. This was the first for AP to have wireless transmission from the field. Each photographer in the seats had a laptop operator sitting next to them with a Mac laptop zip-tied to an upside-down milk crate. The crate held a battery, UPS, a Breeze COM wireless link, and radio gear for voice communication between the laptop operator and an assigned photo editor in the trailer. I recall two photo editors assigned to four fixed photographers, each editor covering two photographers. I know there were six wireless links using BreezeCom technology, early 802.11, and the signals were bounced off repeaters from a light ring above the stadium. Howard recalls that during NFL smoke test on Saturday, they discovered that AP was using the same frequency as the blimps, and AP knocked out their video feed. AP changed to some Australian frequency to stop the interference. Funny now, but not at the time, for sure. Although Photo Mechanic was running on the stadium seat laptops, the laptop operator was not in control of Photo Mechanic or the actual operation of Mac OS, for that matter. Those in control of the laptops were the editors in the trailer using a remote control software called Timbuktu. Each of the two editors was managing three instances of photo mechanic, one on their own computer in the trailer, and the other two being Timbuktu views of the laptops in the stadium seats. Confused yet? <laughs> oh, wow, this sounds like a lot for doing a football game. When an important event happened, or just during breaks, the photographers would eject their PCMCIA hard drive from their NC2000 camera and hand it to the laptop operator, who would radio their editor that a new disk was being mounted into the PCMCIA slot of the laptop. The editor would see this happen in their Timbuktu view of the laptop and would open up that folder in, in Photo Mechanic and then browse the photos. When they found photos they wanted, they would copy them to a mounted folder on the desktop. This would initiate a lossless compression transfer of the raw photo from the stadium seat laptop to the editor's folder on their Mac in the trailer. After all desired photos were copied, the disk was remotely erased by the editor in preparation for more photos to be captured. Then, most importantly, the editor would warn the laptop operator that the hard disk, a.k.a. a spinning magnetic platter, 
was about to be ejected because sometimes those discs would pop out of the laptop reader unexpectedly and with great intent. I have video of this behavior with my PowerBook G3 laptop, which still runs to this day. There's no way a hard disk would survive landing on concrete stadium steps. The laptop operator, aka laptop sitter, would literally catch the hard disk and then carefully hand the PCM-CIA disk back to the photographer. This process would merrily repeat and the result was very fast delivery of photos. All photos selected by photo editors using Photo Mechanic were then sent to the AP server folders for the preppers, aka those who manipulated pixels in Photoshop, for them to open and process. All the incoming Kodak DCS for all photos were developed using my DCS photo plugin. This was like an early version of Adobe Camera Raw. Rather than use Kodak's Photoshop Acquire plugin, photos would come into Photoshop via My File Format plugin that only handled TIFF. Files that were obviously Kodak DCS RAW files, not normal TIFF formatted files. The beauty of this setup is that the photo editors were free to edit photos without living inside of Photoshop and Kodak's plugin. Only the preppers needed to use Photoshop in order to manipulate pixels and recover an image as best they could due to the fact that these were digital photos. A big part of this digital restoration was the use of Quantum Mechanic, my Photoshop noise fitter filter plugin that greatly reduced high ISO noise. AP actually used a simplified version of this filter called AP Filter that only had low, medium, and high settings to choose from. Two years earlier, at Super Bowl 30, AP used prototype noise filter I made called Color Clean. After this big game and seeing Photo Mechanic get put to the test with no problems, I decided to release Photo Mechanic the next week. Version 1.01 was available for download on February 4th, 1998. The Associated Press distributed Photo Mechanic as AP Viewer for a few years along with the AP Filter. I thought the Associated Press's setup was impressive, but I was just a photo nerd and software developer. Who was I to know how big this event was for AP and digital photography? I really felt like I was a fly on the wall. Unknowingly, I would become a fly in the ointment. This was AP's first wireless transmission from the field for a Super Bowl, the first time computers in the trailer were even connected by Ethernet. The first all-digital Super Bowl coverage for AP was in Super Bowl 30 in Tempe two years earlier, which I witnessed and contributed to. I didn't work for AP like everyone thought I did, but I took some pride in knowing that all of those photos were seen and developed by Photo Mechanic before being distributed worldwide by AP. I didn't imagine it was the first of 25 years for Photo Mechanic to be a central part of sports photography history. I like to joke that Tom Brady has been to 10 Super Bowls, but Photo Mechanic has been to the last 25 of them. But this was the process 25 years ago. You can imagine how much that has changed. I believe the Associated Press had a large advantage over their competitors back then due to the fact that they were the distributor of the NC2000 camera. Despite their expense, the ROI on this expensive camera was very quick, and that is why the Vancouver Sun and sister Calgary Herald were smart to be the first all-in newspaper adopters of digital in North America. The Rochester Democrat and Chronicle and Kodak Land followed soon afterward, but not because the photo department was eager to go digital. It was a decision made by management. 
I would like to thank Brian Horton and Howard Gross for sharing their memories of that day. Thank you to Nick Ditlick, for, uh, then from Vancouver Sun, and Rob Galbraith from their Calgary Herald for helping to herald in this new digital era for providing endless supportive ideas. Special thanks to the late Jim Dietz, who worked with me to integrate PM into AP, and to the late David Martin, who embodied the spirit of photojournalism and inspired me and many others. Both Dave and Jim gave their lives to the pressures of covering big sporting events. I miss them both dearly. I also wish to express my deep thanks to the Associated Press for placing trust in such a small company as myself and for agreeing to sell Photo Mechanic as AP viewer. This was the super day that kicked off my career, and the game ain't over yet. Dennis Walker is the founder of Camera Bits, the company behind Photo Mechanic, a popular front-end photo ingesting and tagging and browsing tool used by photographers around the world. The opinions expressed in this article are solely those of the offer. This article was also published at an accompanying link. And so that's pretty incredible, all of the things that this gentleman went through when he was developing this highly popular photo software. I know photo mechanic is used by a lot of people today and a lot of people really appreciate all the hard work that he put into that project of his. How to deal with extreme dynamic range in landscape photography. No doubt most of us found ourselves in the following situation. You've discovered a beautiful landscape scene that you've carefully composed in your camera's viewfinder. Your camera's on a tripod and there's no wind, so you're feeling confident you'll be able to capture everything in one shot with both a small aperture and slow shutter speed. Things are looking great. But when you check your photos afterward, you realize they look nothing like what you remember seeing at the time. Either all the bright parts, the sky and clouds, are now completely white, or else the dark bits, all the shadows, are rendered solid black. It's so infuriating. It doesn't matter how much we fiddle with our shutter speed, aperture, and or ISO, our cameras never seem to be able to capture what our eyes can see. Could any camera ever accurately capture what our eyes and brains are experiencing? We are able to discern details in all the brightest areas of any scene, as well as notice details in the darkest shadow areas under most lighting conditions. Our eyes and brains are truly amazing. Perhaps we're all experiencing an incorrect perception of reality. Maybe our cameras are all telling the truth, and it's our brains that are deceiving us with an altered sense of what's real. When we notice the details in a bright sky and then immediately afterwards notice some details in the dark rocks in the foreground, are our brains somehow compensating for the difference in dynamic range, or are we seeing things exactly as they are in reality? My own personal experience for, of something might be nothing like yours at all. We all tend to perceive colors slightly differently, so my brain's interpretation of green might be slightly more or less magenta than yours, for instance. This is why I feel that it is much more important for me to try to edit my photos to replicate what my eyes and brain experienced at the time than exactly how my camera captured these scenes. If my eyes can see the details in all the highlights and shadows, then I'd also like to be able to capture those details in my photos. In this article, I will explain how I dealt with one of the most challenging scenes I've ever attempted to photograph. I was hoping to capture a vertical panorama or vertorama for a small cascade in Jubilee Creek in the 
Nincia forest in South Africa. But the difference in luminosity between the bright white clouds and the dark shadows known as dynamic range was more than even my Nikon D850 was able to capture with one exposure. There are only two rules in photography that I will always try to adhere to. One, I never want to find any pure black or pure white pixels in any of my final edited photos. Anything in between is acceptable, providing that was how my brain interpreted what my eyes saw at the time. And two, I usually only make global adjustments when editing my photos instead of local adjustments. I do this to retain the relative luminosity between all objects or elements in my composition. The clouds and sky will always be much brighter than anything which could reflect that sky, and our photos begin to look weird as soon as that relationship changes. If you only ever take photos with your phone, or if your camera is always set to capture JPEGs on auto, or if you don't believe that editing your photos afterwards could ever improve them, then please stop reading now. This article is probably not for you. Although I won't be attempting to describe the exact workflow that I followed to blend, stitch, and edit my three photos, anyone familiar with Photoshop's adjustment layer should have no problem understanding this article. It is said that there are many ways to skin a cat, and I have no doubt that there are shorter routes to achieve some of the steps described in my workflow. I obviously treat every image differently, so my workflow is not exactly the same every time. Some photos will be quick and easy to edit with minimal adjustments, while others may require much more work to get them looking exactly how I remember seeing the scene at that time. I should add that I love cats, and I would never consider actually skinning one. My basic editing workflow is always the same. First, I blend two or more images together to recover all highlight and shadow details. Then I stitch the images together, if I'm creating a panorama, and I crop my photo. Next, I apply some mid-tone contrast, preserving highlight and shadow details, and then I carefully brighten the image while adjusting the global contrast. The next two steps are selective color and selective saturation adjustments. Then I make some final tweaks, removing dust spots, etc., before saving my layered image as a 16-bit TIFF file. So step one, capturing the raw images. After setting my camera up on my tripod, the first few photos that I take are usually test shots to determine the ideal settings required to capture all the details in the highlights. Once I'm confident that no highlights are being overexposed, I will take several more shots, each one being one stop brighter than the previous one. I decided to stop my aperture down to f22. In this case, as I wanted my shutter speed to be as slow as possible for the moving water, and also because I wanted maximum depth of field. Of course, I realized that my photos wouldn't be as sharp as they could be due to diffraction, but my lens was very close to the foreground rock, and I decided to sacrifice some sharpness for a greater depth of field and a slower shutter speed. I focused my lens on the white spots on the large rock to the left of the cascade, and then I switched off my autofocus I never shift my focal point between successive photos in a panorama. That's just asking for trouble later on. My first photo shown above was taken with a 1 second exposure. Although this was the perfect exposure for capturing the details in the white clouds, unfortunately, most of the rest of the photo was completely underexposed. It's always easier to recover details from the darkest areas of our raw files than from the brightest areas, but I realized that no amount of shadow recovery could ever reveal all the details in the darkest areas of my first photo. So I took a few more photos with a slower shutter speed. 
My next photo shown below was captured at one third of a second that has no details in the clouds, the area shaded in red. Although the shadows still seem very dark, I felt fairly confident that I'd be able to recover all those details from the raw file. I could have slowed my shutter speed even further to capture an even brighter image, but my basic luminos luminosity blending technique described below works best when the difference in exposure between the two images that are being blended is no more than two stops. I then tilt my camera downward to capture the lower photo for my two-image vertorama. Since most of the dark spots were in the bottom half of the composition, I slowed my shutter speed even further to a 0.6 second exposure and captured the photo shown below. Everything still looked very dark and underexposed at this stage, but I felt confident I'd be able to blend, stitch, and edit these three raw files in a natural and realistic manner. I opened all three files in Adobe Camera Raw, where I began by making some basic adjustments. Step 2. Saving the raw files as TIFFs. My objective during this step is to use the highlights and shadows sliders to recover as many details as possible without the photos looking unnatural. I usually reduce the highlights to minus 40 and boost the shadows to plus 80. Then I make sure to select the most appropriate white balance for the scene, usually daylight, before saving the images as 16-bit TIFF files. My next step is to increase the exposure by one stop and then save another copy of each image. So now I have six images to work with, a bright and a dark version of each of my three RAW files. It's time to start blending and stitching everything together. Step 3. Basic Luminosity Blending my objective during this step is to combine the lightest parts of the darker photos with the darkest parts of the lighter photo for each of the three photos that make up this vertorama. This might all sound very complicated, but it's actually quite easy. If we're using Photoshop, we can do it in a few simple steps. One, open both images and then copy and paste the lighter image into the darker one as a new layer. Switch to the Channels tab and click your mouse on the RGB section while holding down the Control key. Press the delete key to remove all the brightest selected pixels from the upper layer. Press the control plus D keys to end the selection, marching ants. Merge the two layers into one with control E, then press control S to save. What we have now is a very flat looking image, low contrast, which doesn't look particularly good. But it does contain all the details in both the highlight and the shadow areas. I'll start to add some contrast again a bit later after I blended and stitched everything together. So why didn't I create a mask and then brush out only the brightest parts from my luminosity selection instead of pressing the delete key? I hear you all ask. This is because I never want to change the relative luminosity of any of the elements in my composition. When I only darken the sky and clouds, then I run that risk of something which is reflecting that sky might become brighter than the sky itself. The photo shown below is what my darkest exposure looks like after applying my quick luminosity blend. We can now see a lot more details in both the clouds and the foreground. I don't mind that the foreground is still very dark because I will only be using the sky and clouds part of this photo. The image shown below is what my second photo looks like after applying my luminosity blending technique. Here I'm only interested in recovering all the shadow details. The slightly overexposed highlights don't concern me at all. Next, I apply the same luminosity blending technique to combine my first and second photos, as shown below. Now I have an extremely flat-looking image, but one where all the details are clearly visible in a completely realistic way. 
Next, I use my luminosity blending technique on the lower image of my Verderama. We are now able to see all the smallest details in every part of the photo. This image could be a lot brighter without compromising the highlights, but it also can't be too bright if I'm hoping for a realistic result for my stitching software. Step four is stitching and cropping. My panorama stitching software of choice is called PTGUI. This program produces the most accurate result in the shortest possible time of all the stitching software I've ever used. It managed to stitch my two images together seamlessly in only a few seconds. I saved the results as a merged 16-bit TIFF file. The next steps in my workflow are to crop the final panorama and then remove any obvious distractions. I decided to crop this Vergarama perfectly square. I also decided to remove the dead tree poking out into the sky since that was a bit too eye-catching and distracting for me. Although I might occasionally clone out some of the most distracting elements from my composition, I will never add anything that wasn't there when I took the photos. That's where I draw my line. The photo below shows the final stitched, cropped, and cloned Vergarama. It still looks very dark, flat, and not at all like I remember seeing the scene, but I'll begin to address those issues next. Besides the obvious need for more contrast, I also want to, to brighten the image further without overexposing anything. At this stage, my Bergerama also has a slightly bluish color cast, which I definitely wanted to fix later. Step 5. Adding Midtone Contrast Adding global contrast to an image effectively brightens all the highlights and darkens all the shadows, but since I've spent so much time and effort trying to preserve those details, it seems completely counterproductive to now start increasing the global contrast again. Adding midtone contrast allows us to preserve the shadows and highlights while only applying contrast to the midtones. That was exactly what I wanted in this particular situation. An easy way to adjust the midtone contrast using Photoshop is with a curves adjustment layer. An even easier way is to use the Pro Contrast filter offered in the Nick Color FX Pro Photoshop plugin. Although I don't use a fraction of the filters that are available in this amazing plugin, the few that I do use, I tend to use all the time. The Pro Contrast filter is definitely one of those. At this stage, my image still looks much too dark and also too flat. Anyone can see that. The highlights could still be quite a bit brighter without blowing anything out, but now I would need to keep a very close eye on the histogram to prevent that from happening. Step six, adding more brightness and contrast. Next, I might use either a brightness contrast or a curves adjustment layer to tweak the final exposure and contrast. In this particular case, I only brightened the area a little without adjusting the contrast. Now that my photo was as bright as possible without blowing out any highlights, I could proceed to step seven, which is selective color adjustment. Increasing the brightness and contrast of an image always increases the saturation. Some of the colors of my photo were starting to appear slightly oversaturated and unrealistic, particularly the yellows and greens. It was time for me to address those issues. I always do this selectively, but also completely globally to every part of my image. Although I was fairly confident that most of the colors were accurate representations of my experienced reality, I now felt that the greens were a bit too green and also a bit too bright. The yellows, on the other hand, were either not yellow enough or not bright enough. My favorite tool for this purpose is Photoshop's Selective Color Adjustment Layers. I always use the new adjustment layer for every color that I change. 
in case I later decide to lower the opacity of that layer or to make the mask to brush out specific parts which didn't require that particular adjustment. The photo below shows what things looked like after I brightened the yellows and made them more yellow and then darkened the greens and made them a bit less green. The other colors are exactly as they were before. Now that the exposure and colors roughly match what my brain cells recalled seeing at the time, some of those colors still seemed a bit too oversaturated for my taste. Step eight is selective saturation adjustments. I always adjust the color saturation with a number of different hue saturation adjustment layers using a new adjustment layer for every color that I adjust. The image below shows what things look like after slightly reducing the saturation of the yellows, greens, and blues. This is always a good time for me to step away from my computer for a few minutes or have a good night's sleep and review everything later with much fresher eyes. Only then will I sometimes notice the smallest distractions and inaccuracies that went completely unnoticed before. This is a very important part of my editing workflow. Step 9, Final Touches. Now that I'm 100% happy with the exposure, colors, and saturation, it's time to zoom the image to 200% and then remove anything that doesn't belong where it is. Dust spots, litter, etc. Extreme shadow recovery can also often introduce some unwelcome noise to our photos. This is something that I'm always aware of and try to reduce whenever possible. At this stage, I do a final check to ensure that I haven't clipped any highlights or shadows. I did mention that I'd ra I'm rather anal about that. Adjusting the highlights and or shadow recovery sliders in Adobe Camera Raw to tweak those. During this stage, I might also make some small last-minute adjustments to the white balance. The photo shown below is what my photo looks like after some noise and dust spot removal and also after a small white balance adjustment to warm everything up just a fraction further. So that's how I skin my cat, metaphorically speaking. These are the only steps that I take to edit my photos. I usually only make minor adjustments, and I usually only apply these adjustments globally. None of the steps in my editing workflow are so drastic that a non-believer should ever ask me, did you edit this in Photoshop? This is very similar to how a woman might apply her facial makeup. I would never attempt to define what a woman is, nor would I ever suggest that only women should use makeup. However, if you did decide to apply makeup to your face or anywhere else, then it might be a bit more flattering if you did so subtly so that nobody could notice that you aren't who or what you appear to be. But that's just my opinion, best taken with a pinch of salt. <laughs> and you can check out the images in this article in the show notes. He has an amazing photograph here, and the editing process really does do a fantastic job of giving you the best possible image. So congratulations, Paul. Nice job. Tourists in our own reality, Susan Sontag's photography at 50. This year marks 50 years since Susan Sontag's essay, Photography, was published in the New York Review of Books, slightly edited and renamed in Plato's Cave. It would become the first essay in her collection on photography, which has never been out of print. The breadth of photography is immense. It ranges over artistic, commercial, photojournalistic, and popular uses of photography, and it discusses the photo uh, photograph's role in both sensitizing and desensitizing us to other people's suffering. A theme song tag considered 30 years later in her final book regarding the pain of others. But perhaps nowhere in Sontag's enduring re relevance as a critic cleaner 
then in the essays and analysis of photography as both a symptom and a source of our pathological relationship to reality. Sontag described photography as a defense against anxiety. She saw that it had become a coping mechanism. Confronted with the chaotic surfeit of sensation, we retreat behind the protection of the camera, whose one-eyed, one-censored perspective makes the world seem uh, manable. Uh, Sontag claimed that we photograph most what we feel most insecure, particularly when we are in an unfamiliar place where we don't know how to react or what is expected of us. Taking a photograph becomes a way of attenuating the otherness of a place, holding it at a distance. Tourists use their cameras as shields between themselves and whatever they encounter. According to Sontag, photography gives the tourist experience a definite structure, stop, take a photograph, and then move on. Having taken a photograph, we think of its subject as our creative. It's there now on the film in the camera's memory, and this can make us inept observers. There is no need to experience something now, as we can always review it later, so we grab and run. Even if we compose carefully, we can make, rather than take, a photograph we are likely to feel the release of the shutter as the release of a bond, as if now we now can or must move on to other photographs. Photography is a way of testifying, I saw this, I was there. Kodak's marketing through the early 20th century testifies to this urge. Quote, take a Kodak with you was one of the company's earliest slogans. By 1903, they are announcing that a vacation without a Kodak is a vacation wasted. Sontag wrote, quote, a way of certifying experience taking photographs is also a way of refusing it by converting experience into an image, a souvenir. Travel becomes a strategy for accumulating photos. Through photography, Sontag argued we sooner or later become tourists in our own reality. Sontag thought this happened mainly due to the photojournalistic, the person on constant lookout for their next subject. But it is true of most of us today. We have become discontent uh, on the perpetual look outlook for the content. Photographic promiscuity is now one of our mores. It's what we do. We shoot everything, not least ourselves. In the revised version of the essay, Sontag says that taking photographs has set up a chronic voyeuristic relation to the world. Her claim is that photography has reframed the way we see the world and our place in it. We, uh, what we see is mediated by technology. When we look through the eye of the camera, everything is revealed as a possible photograph. This has an atomizing effect. People and experiences appear discreet, the sort of thing suitable for collection in the uh, miscellany of memory. One way of approaching Sontag's deeper point here is through her discussion of this like advertisement. The people in the advertisement in, in vice, fear, and shock, but the man behind this viewfinder is self-possessed. The promise is that the camera will make you the master of all situations. The Soviets crushing the Prague Spring, the Woodstock Festival, the war in Vietnam, the Winter Games in Sapporo, the troubles in Northern Ireland, all of these are equalized by the camera. They are reduced to the status of the event, something that is worth seeing and therefore worth photographing. Sontag was critical of a high reduction that takes place in the lives of the viewing public, itself an extraordinarily telling phrase. She wrote that photographs have the effect of making us feel that the world is more available than it really is. 
We see photographs of people and events that are remote in space and time. This may seem to bring them closer, but the sense in which they are made available is a highly mitigated one. Elsewhere, in on photography, Sontag speaks of a proximity which creates all the more distance. She argues that, quote, it is not reality that photographs make immediately accessible, but images. Flicking through a photo magazine, we encounter a disorienting welter of subjects, the horrific, the erotic, the mundane. Everything jostles for our attention as tokens of one all-engrossing category, the interesting. This confusion is the ordinary condition of today's compulsive screen stroker. Sontag's complaint about the leveling effect of media is nothing new. It goes back at least to the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard in the 1840s. At that time, new telegraph networks and faster printing presses meant that each morning more eyes were focused on news about elsewhere. Kierkegaard thought that as we became more curious about distant events, our lives lose intensity. We cease to see ourselves as concrete individuals and become members of that abstraction, the public, whose solidarity, duty, uh, solitary duty is to be informed, to be conversant with the topics of the day. Like Kierkegaard, Sontag's purpose was, broadly speaking, ethical. She was concerned with our sense of ourselves and our place in the world. She thought that uh, photographs were displacing us. What is furthest in space and time now reaches us as quickly as what is the closest. It is not that the fear has drawn nearer, but that everything is held at an equal distance. Our sense of uh, situatedness has been upset. We are simultaneously everywhere and nowhere, and all-seeing in corporal eye. Our sense of orientation, our sense of what is relevant to us, has diminished. This may give a false impression of Sontag's argument. Her political commitment is beyond question. Just read about her in 1968 visit to North Vietnam or her 1993 staging of waiting for Godot in Sarajevo. She was certainly not trying to justify inattention or insularity. Sontag's objection is primarily to the way we are transformed into, as she writes elsewhere, customers or tourists of reality. Our responsibility becomes perpetual consumption of what is served up by the media. We relate to the world beyond the media as if it were the media, as if it were content. Songtag's criticism of mediation is in part about a loss of intensity, but more to the point is about to use one of her key terms, a loss of complexity. Contact demands more than an image hitting the eye. It requires immersion. It requires physicality. It requires understanding. Sontag envisages a responsibility beyond that of the so-called concerned spectator, whose attention she describes elsewhere as proximity without risk. In a late interview, Sontag said that she was for complexity and the respect for reality, but what uh, what exactly does she mean by reality? Photography begins. Quote, we linger unregularly in Plato's cave, still reveling in our age-old habit and mere image of the truth. For Plato, reality is a world of abstract ideas hidden behind sensory experience. His cave dwellers are prisoners forced to watch flickering, evanescent images cast on the wall. Knowledge alone can loosen our bonds and allow us to discover the source of delusion that we mistake for reality. 
Sontag's cave is a different proposition. It is the cave of the Cyclops in the Gorgon, where all that moves becomes ossified before that one inframing eye. What Sontag saw were not the truths of static facts, but those of lived experience. In the worn existential jargon, she was after authenticity in the relationship of the individual to themselves and their society. She was also after presence and immersion in the moment, so long as we do not assume this means the non-discursive presence advocated by her contemporaries in slogans such as Be Here Now. Sontag was interested above all in enriching the sorts of stories that we tell ourselves and others. She was interested in consciousness, not in the narrow sense of the mind as opposed to the body but in the novelist sense of the narratives of embodied subjects. Understanding for Sontag is not a matter of taking things at face value, but a matter of interpretation. Only that which narrates can make us understand, she writes. And I'm going to take a short break right here, and then I'll be right back. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the Liam Photography Podcast. The best way to support the show is to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. If you want to leave comments or suggestions for future episodes, you can call or text the show at area code 470-294-8191. And you can email the show at liam at liamphotographypodcast.com. You can find the show notes and links at liamphotographypodcast.com. And you can tweet the show at liamphotoatl using the hashtag. Hashtag Liam Photo Podcast. And now back to the show. And we're back. So continuing on, Sontag has a strong sense of the inter interpretation of mind and world. Her concept of consciousness is not platonic, but proetesian. How we look at things profoundly influences what we see. We are not extractable from what happens to us. Our present is pregnant with an with our past, the world is not a composite of objects out there which can be put in our pockets. Our experiences are not objects in here which can be filed away in the mind's albums. The psychological distance required to record an experience does not leave that experience unchanged. Not only that, but those recording can come to dominate and displace our narratives or our memories. In the last of the On Photography essay, Sontag writes that photographs are not so much an instrument of memory as an invention of it or a replacement. Our memories are in flux, our narratives forever being rewritten. The photograph becomes iconic as a tangible document to which we can return. It eclipses the subtle and always equivocal texture of multisensory association. That is what Aunt Leon looked like. This is what happened on that trip to Cambrai. Kodak knew this. Two humans forget, they said, but snapshots remember. To have a Kodak with you is to be able to capture the moment to possess it. They all remembered the Kodak, but perhaps it is all they remembered. Our history thus begins to present itself as a set of snapshots, static events. Our memories are made readily available to us by the camera as things. But for Sontag, our memories are not possessions. Our memories possess us or haunt us. Of course, photographs can haunt us too. In her last book, Sontag argued that we should let certain images do so. But her sense of the danger of what we might call a photographic relationship to reality 
is not only relevant today, it is liable to seem positively present. The two decades since Sontag's death in 2004 have seen the greatest changes in popular photographic practice since the Browning brought photography to the masses a century earlier. In 1973, Sontag spoke of the omnipresence of cameras. How does one trump a claim to ubiquity? When Sontag wrote that only the most earnest shutterbug took their camera with them everywhere, but since her death, cameras have become not only smaller, but also indiscreet. The camera is no longer something one decides to pocket. It piggybacks on the presence of the smartphone. The coupling of camera and internet has changed the nature of photography. Kodak tells us in a 2010 campaign that the real Kodak moment happens when you share. This marks an important shift in emphasis away from the experience one tried to capture and towards the experience of publicity. We no longer have to wait to show others what we have seen, but more importantly, those others have changed. Not only can we show photos to more people, but the viewer no longer needs to be selected at all. Our audience has become vague. It is that abstraction again, the public. We now have a compulsion to not only record, but to share. And for what? Sontag said that everything exists to end in a photograph. Today, everything exists to be scrolled past in a feed. And I really enjoyed this article. And I, I remember reading Sontag's books when I was younger. Um, she definitely had some interesting thoughts on photography and how it shapes our perceptions of the world. Flower Portrait Series is a modern take on ancient Japanese art. Inspired by the quietness displayed in Japanese ikebana arrangements, photographer Robert Peake's images display a calm, mystic, and lively radiant that captivates viewers' attention and curiosities. Utilizing a vast array of luminous flora, smoke, and powders, Peak's images pay homage to the principles of the ancient art of Japanese flower arrangements, highlighting balance and harmony while also showcasing his distinct dreamy expressions in movement. In 1984, when Orwellian views of the world were prolific, Peak sought beauty in the world around him and founded his photo studio in Rotterdam. The Netherlands-based artists focused on and developed love for lighting and composition. Currently, Peake has spent years working as an advertisement photographer while consistently showcasing his skills of light, purity, and smooth edging. But when not working on various branded projects, he finds solace and serenity in his practice of gardening. Quote, I grow flowers in my garden, and these were a good inspiration to photograph, Peake tells Petapixel. In a series of images featuring flowers and vegetation of all kinds, Peak works immense uh, works immerse viewers into a hazy elemental journey, full of playful mixtures of color, mass, and trick of the eye lighting. Part reminiscent painting, part organic luminescent floral exhibition, Peak's shots utilize the natural flows of water, smoke, and ice. And he does have some amazing images in this article. Capturing spontaneous movements, Peak's shots show flowers that seem to jump, mysteriously float, or gently evaporate against a solid background, all within a simplistic studio setup. Quote, all the work is done in the studio with mostly one or two lights. I do a lot of different things. For the jumping flowers, I use holy powder, 
I also use smoke or dry ice, and I shoot underwater as well, Peek explains. These methods, accompanied by a minimalistic aesthetic, give his images a flawless look, something that isn't necessarily reflective of the actual process. Quote, it often takes a lot of trial and error to get a good result, but I like to keep the photos simple with the buildup, he says. As for equipment, Peek started with a Hasselblad, but recently has switched to Fujifilm. I don't care about the brand, but I do like working in medium formats, he says. The effects are calming images, invoking contemplation, feelings of peace, solitude, and even melancholy, a trademark of Peek's other works. Feedback on his Flora projects has been positive on Instagram and Behance, which inspires Pete to keep seeking inspiration and refuge in his gardens. For more from Robert Peake, make sure to visit his website, Instagram, or Behance. And he does have some truly stunning work, and I highly recommend that you check it out for yourself. And last from Petapixel, new photo studio promises pro-level headshots without a photographer. Lilo Photo bills itself as the world's first professional self-portrait studio where anyone can get a high-quality portrait taken without needing a photographer. The company bills itself as an absolutely unique project, a fully automated photo studio, studio that is capable of providing professional-level, high-quality portraits without the need of a photographer, all delivered in a rather compact space that can be placed in malls and other gathering places in metropolitan areas. The self-portrait studios have a plan to roll out across North America with the first coming to Miami, Florida in the Miami International Mall. The company says that Lilo Photo will soon be present all across the United States. The concept is fairly simple and is just a step up from the classic small uh, mall photo booth. Each photo studio booth is equipped with built-in lighting that can be turned on by the subject to best light the look and style they are waiting are wanting for their portrait. The studio will then hold a session of 20 total photos, after which it will present them on a touchscreen. Customers are given the option to apply any of a few different filters onto the photos, and there are some other minor editing features available, such as leveling or resizing. Once a customer is satisfied with the result of one photo, they can print it out from the professional photo printer located on the exterior of the studio and also have a digital version emailed to them. The whole experience is expected to last no more than five minutes. It costs $19.90 per session, $19.90, just so you know. And while it only includes one final photo, Lilo Photo also has the option to add more photos from the session for an extra cost, all the way up through the choices to buy all 20 photos should they want. The resulting portraits do look well lit, though quite similar to one another. Yeah. <laughs> Lilo Photo says that it only uses the highest quality equipment and studio lighting that was selected by its team for the specific conditions inside the booth. It has also been optimally configured by professional photographers and lighting designers, and the company's custom software is built as simple, easy to use. The launch of Lilo Photo in the Miami International Mall is part of the larger partnership with Simon Property Group, which owns similar malls around the country. While the details of the partnership are not revealed, it would make sense that Lilo Photo has plans to expand its booth through Simon's huge library of nationwide properties. And it's kind of intriguing, although, like I said, I don't think I would be interested in this because, as the article states, 
everybody's portraits pretty much end up looking the same. And why would you want to do that? Most of us, if we, you know, if we're paying for a headshot or a portrait, we want a unique look, not something that's cookie cutter and the same as everybody else's. But maybe that's just me. Let me know in the comments in the Facebook group for the show. And now we'll head on over to Canon Rumors for this week. After almost 30 years, Canon is ending the, quote, KISS branding in Japan. With the announcement of the Canon EOS R50, which is the spiritual successor to the Canon EOS M50 and M50 Mark II, KISS M2 will not be using the KISS branding in Japan. This branding has existed for almost 30 years. What about Rebel? I think it's safe to say that we won't be seeing that branding anymore in North America either, though we haven't heard anything official from Canon USA. Rebel definitely carried a lot of weight in the film days as well as the DSLR craze. Some of us are old enough to remember Andre Agassi's flowing locks letting us know that the Rebel was cool. Content creation is definitely a global thing. An ideological nomenclature everywhere on the planet will be a very welcome change. The KISS series celebrates its 30th anniversary this year, but as mentioned above, the R50 is not a KISS series, even though it is an entry model. According to Canon Marketing Japan, camera needs to have diversified with the changing times, and in order to convey the appeal of mirrorless SLRs to a wider audience than previous KISS users, the model model name used globally has been integrated instead of the KISS brand. So interesting that they're dropping that moniker after almost 30 years, but it does make sense. Canon adds the EOS R50 and the EOS R8 to the growing EOS R mirrorless camera system. Plus image storytelling through R mount lenses is re-amped up with additions of the new RFS 55-210, F5-71 ISSTM, and the RF24-50, F45-63 ISSTM lenses. Melville, New York, February 7th, Canon USA Inc., a leader in digital imaging solutions, announced today the launch of the new EOS R50 camera body, ideal for entry-level users, and the EOS R8, an extremely compact full-frame camera aimed at advanced amateur photo and video enthusiasts looking for budget-friendly options that don't sacrifice performance. Additionally, the two new RF mount lenses are being introduced to the ever-growing R-mount lens roadmap. The EOS R50, compact, lightweight, and ideal for those looking to step up their video quality, the EOS R50 provides an impressive movie shooting experience thanks to the APS-C sensor with a 4K video uncropped 4K capture at all frame rates and outstanding dual-pixel CMOS AF technology. With the addition of the whole area tracking as subject detection and movie pre-recording, difficult photo movie opportunities can be easier to capture with a 24.2 million pixel APS-C sized image sensor. In addition, the EOS R50 is equipped with an eye-level electronic viewfinder to help achieve shot steadiness and ease viewing in bright sunlight conditions. A great camera for those who are looking to lean into interchangeable lenses, the EOS R50 camera can capture travel adventures, family portraits, sports, wildlife, and even help a small business with marketing imagery. 
For those who are budding content creators, the EOS R50 will be available later in 2023 as part of a content creator kit packaged with a microphone, lens, and grip. Overall, the EOS R50 is truly a jack-of-all content creation trades. Quote, the first time I picked up the EOS R50, I noticed how light it was. When I saw the footage, I wondered how the quality can be so good with its lightweight in my hand. My mind was blown. Bianca Matisse Taylor, content creator and blogger. The EOS R8, affordable and functional, is a full-frame mirrorless camera aimed at the up-and-coming video or photography enthusiast. This camera comes with class-leading autofocus while still extremely capable for everyday and general photography use. Equipped with a 24.2-megapixel CMOS image sensor and a Digic 10 image processor, the EOS R8 is optimal for full-frame RF lenses, allowing enhanced wide-angle field of views when compared to the APS sensor cameras. Extremely lightweight and compact, the EOS R8 shoots up to 6 frames per second with first curtain electronic shutter and up to 40 frames per second with full electronic. For users who have already explored interchangeable lens cameras but haven't yet broken into mirrorless, the EOS R8 should be the camera that takes them over the threshold to capture events, weddings, still life, travel, and pets. Quote, my work is a lot about movement and not missing a beat with the fast shutter on the EOS R8 is so important to me as an artist, Jasper Soloff, photographer and director. Additional product specs include video performance, uncropped 4K video, 59.94p or 2997p with the EOS R50 with 6K over sampling. Full HD to 5994 frames per second, high frame rate of 119.8 frames per second, full HD 1080p with the EOS R8. Dual pixel CMOS AF with subject detection for people, animals, and vehicles. Up to two hours of continuous recording, one hour with the EOS R50. No 30-minute limit. Focus breathing correction. Enhanced usability for video creation. Vertical media, uh, video metadata. Movie self-timer. Audio noise reduction only in the EOS R8. UVC, UAC support for USB live streaming. Recording emphasis and aspect markers. For connectivity, easy wireless connection from camera to compatible smartphone. Camera connect with USB connection to compatible smartphones. USB streaming direct to computer via Zoom, Teams, or Skype. MFI certified Apple WPA3, personal protected access, convenient firmware updates via compatible smartphone and cloud raw processing. Alongside the cameras, Canon will release uh, two new lenses. The RFS lens line, optimized for the smaller APS-C sensor size, expands with the Canon RFS 55-210 with an F5-71 ISSTM lens. This is a telephoto zoom giving coverage equivalent to 88 to 336 millimeter lens on a full frame camera. The lens opens the door to telephoto photography and videography with a 4.5 stop optical image stabilization and close focusing that can fill the frame with the subject roughly two by three inches in size at its 210 millimeter zoom settings and minimal focus distance. And it does all this in an incredibly lightweight and compact package. 
The Canon RF 24-50, f4.5-6.3 ISSTM is a new compact standard zoom lens for full-frame EOS R-series cameras. Ranging from true wide-angle to traditional standard lens coverage at 50mm, the lens is a travel-friendly design with an extremely compact exterior. The RF 24-50 lens is just over two inches long when fully retracted and under 3.5 when extended, weighing less than half a pound. Optical image stabilization with 4.5 stops of shake correction further enhances appeal for video and still image shooting. It's also usable on an APS-C sensor Canon camera where the lens's effective coverage is equivalent to what a 38 to 80 would be on full-frame cameras. As far as price and availability, the Canon EOS R8 camera body will be available for an estimated retail price of $14.99. The RF 24-50 lens with the EOS R8 will have an estimated retail price of $16.99. The Canon EOS R50 camera body will be available for an estimated retail price of $679.99. The R50 with the RFS 18-45 lens will be available for an estimated retail price of $799. The EOS R50 with the RFS 18-45 and the RFS 55-210 lenses will be available for an estimated retail price of $1,029. The RF 24-50 will be available for an estimated retail price of $299, while the RFS 55-210 will be available for an estimated retail price of $349.99. All products are currently scheduled to be available in spring of 2023. So, as I mentioned before, I thought it was a bad idea for Canon to continue with an S line of lenses for their crop bodies in the RF world, but as usual, they didn't listen to me and they're doing it anyways. I just think it's a waste of time, money, and resources. And now from Nikon rumors, no other Nikon announcements expected for the 2023 CP Plus show in Japan. I was told that Nikon would not announce any other new products for the CP Plus 2023 show in Japan from February 23rd to the 26th. I have not heard any Nikon Z8 updates for a while, so I assume whatever I already reported last year is still valid. But I guess we'll have to wait until CPS 2023 to see if that's actually true. The upcoming rumored Nikon Z8 mirrorless camera will compete with the new Sony a7R5 and is expected in spring of 2023. I'm not sure if this is a legit leaked picture of the Nikon Z8, but you can check it out in today's episode's show notes. This should be a Nikon Z8 mock-up from somebody who has used the camera. The Nikon Z8 camera has been rumored for a while, but we still don't have any reliable leak specifications. I was told that in terms of price and specs, the Nikon Z8 will compete head-to-head with the recently announced Sony a7R5 at $3,900. FYI, here are the basic a7R5 specs. 61-megapixel full-frame Exmor R BSI CMOS sensor, Bionez XR and AI processing unit, AI-based real-time tracking AF system, 8K 24P, 4K 60P, Full HD at 120P, 10-bit video. 4K 16-bit raw output, S-Log3, S-Syntone. 9.44 million dot EVF with 120 frames per second refresh rate. 3.2-inch 4-axis multi-angle touchscreen LCD. 10 frames per second shooting with AF and AE tracking. 8-stop 5-axis image stabilization. Dual CF Express Type A slash SD card slots. 
I was also told that Nikon Z8 camera design is finalized and production ready, and the only issue holding back the official announcement is the ongoing part shortage. When is the Nikon Z8 official announcement expected? The Z8 development announcement could happen in early 2023, just like the Nikon D4 and D5. There is a low chance for an official Z8 announcement at the 2023 CP Plus show in Japan, but that's still a possibility. The most likely scenario is the Z8 announcement in late spring 2023, late March Q2, and a potential shipment in or around May of 2023. What to expect from the Nikon Z8? Same form factor as the Z6 and 7, improved EVF, improved autofocus, and the same sensor as the Z9. Please note that currently there are no reliable rumors about the Z6 III or Z7 III cameras. Nikon already confirmed that they are planning to implement Z9 features to lower-end cameras. Not a big surprise here. You can see this article recently published in Japan to get more details. And you can find all of this information in the show notes for today's episode and check it all out for yourself. And now on over to Fujifilm Rumors. How $3 saved my Fujifilm X-T5 and rediscovering classic negative in Vietnam. If it wasn't for this ultra-cheap accessory, my first travel with my new Fujifilm X-T5 could have been ruined from a photography point of view. Here is what happened. Destination, visiting my wife's family in Hanoi, Vietnam during the Christmas holidays. While waiting for our bags at the Hanoi airport after a humble 25-hour travel in the cheapest economy class seats, I took out my X-T5 and started to take some images. Then I asked my wife to hold the X-T5 while I handled the bags and bring them to the taxi. Once we were in the taxi, rather exhausted from the long flight, my wife put the X-T5 on her lap. Arrived at her parents' home, she totally forgot she had the camera on her legs, opened the door, got out of the car, and the X-T5 tumbled down the street. First thought, luckily, I did not travel with the Fujifilm GFX 100S. Second thought, remember, these are, there are worse things in life. Third thought, crap. When we collected the X-T5, we noticed major cracks on the screen, but luckily I followed my own advice and did immediately apply a $3 touchscreen or a touch-sensitive screen protector on my X-T5 when I bought it. This saved my X-T5, and once back home in Italy, I simply removed the broken screen protector using a dental floss and replaced it with a new one. The X-T5 itself is still in perfect condition and works like a champ. It's a tough little beast. Lesson learned, don't save on the wrong things. If you don't have a self-protecting, fully articulating screen, then a screen protector is a must-buy. Rediscovering classic negative. Now to the more pleasing part of the tale. I didn't get around a lot in Vietnam, as of course our main goal was to spend as much time as possible with her family and friends. So lots of the images I took are casual images capturing our daily life at home. Nothing of huge interest to share on Fuji rumors, but for me personally, the images that matter most. But we did manage to squeeze in a three-day trip to the nearby Ninh Binh province to visit Tam Kok and Tran Yang, where the movie Kong Skull Island was filmed. I traveled with the Fujifilm X-T5 and the XF23-144, and my favorite travel zoom, the XF18-135 at 35-56. And I did put a little challenge on myself, exit out of my film simulation, exit out of my film simulation comfort zone, mainly classic Chrome and Astia, and try to use a film simulation I haven't used in a while. 
This time around, I mostly use classic negative, mainly for street photography and cityscape, but also for some landscape images. And I must say, I really love the results. And as a consequence, I started to use it more often also when I got back home to Italy. The lesson learned? Well, I guess we have all film simulations we particularly love. And maybe in the past, we used some film simulation, simulations that did not convince us, as a consequence, started to ignore them. But my tip would be to give that handy used, hardly used film simulation another try. You might find out you love it more than you initially thought. You can pick up the Fujifilm X-T5 at B&H Photo, Amazon US, Adorama, and Moment, the Fujifilm X-H2 at the same four retailers, and the Fujifilm X-H2S, also available at the same four retailers. Europe to join USA with huge deals on some of Fujifilm's best lenses. Fuji Rumors reader Ralph informed me about upcoming cash back deals coming to Europe that are mirroring those already available in the United States of America. Here is the list of savings available starting from February 16th in Germany and very likely in many other European countries as well. On February 16th, I will pay a visit to my local camera store to get the Fujinon XF23 F1.4R LMWR. For Europe deals, the XF 14mm F2.8R saved 300 euros. In Germany, at Calumet DE, Photo Earnhardt DE, Photo Koch DE. In the UK, at Wex Photo Video UK and Park Camera UK. The XF 18 1.4R LMWR saved 150 euros in at the same retailers in Germany and the UK. The XF23 1.4R LMWR save $100 at all of the same retailers, or 100 euros, I should say. The XF33 F1.4R LMWR save 100 euros at the same retailers. The XF50 millimeter F1.0R WR save 200 euros at the same retailers. The XF56 1.2R saves 300 euros at all of the same retailers, and the XF10 to 24 F4R OIS WR, 150 euros off at all of the exact same retailers. And in the US, the XF14 to 2.8R saves $300 at Amazon, BH Photo, Adorama, Focus Camera, and Moment. The XF18 1.4R LMWR save $150 at all the same retailers. The XF23 1.4R LMWR save $150. The XF33 F1.4R LMWR save $100. The XF50 millimeter F1.0R WR save $250. The XF56 1.2R saved $300, and the XF10 to 24 F4R OIS WR saved $150 at all of the same five retailers. And for price drops, the XF 200mm F2 price dropped $1,000, and the XF8 to 16 2.8, the price dropped $500. For X-Camera deals, the X-T4 body, $150 off. The X-T4 with the XF55, or 18-55, to $150 off. And the X-T4 with the XF18-60, $150 off. All three of these available at b &H Photo, Amazon US, and Adorama. For GFX deals, the GF35-70 F45-56 is $500 off. The GFX50 S2 body is $800 off. And the GFX50 S2 with the GF35-70 is 
$500 off. And as you know, if you've been listening to this show, I recently picked up the GF 35 to 70, and I absolutely love that lens. And I'm hoping maybe later on this year, I'll be lucky enough to finally get the GFX 100S, but we'll have to wait and see how that works out. And now on over to Sony Alpha Rumors to wrap up today's episode. Today only, say big on the Sony a7 IV, 200 euros off, and other Sony gear at Photo Earnhardt. And there is an accompanying article here with a screenshot of all the items that are on sale. You can save a ton on Sony and Samyang gear at Photo Earnhardt. Click here to see the full list and at Photo Koch at the accompanying list. The Sony A7 IV is 200 euros cheaper than the next best price in Germany. And there are quite a few items that are part of the sale, so you might want to jump on those while the getting is still good. So bust out that wallet. And finally leaked, this is the new Sony 50mm f1.4 GM lens. This is the first image in the new Sony 50mm f1.4 GM lens. Announcement should happen on February 21st. Specs known so far, 11-blade aperture, weather sealed, no in-lens stabilization. Price in Europe, 1,850 euros. That's 450 euros less than you pay for the 50mm 1.2 GM. And there's also a short accompanying YouTube video by the owner of Sony Alpha Rumors that you can check out for yourself. And that is going to wrap up the news and rumors for this week. Remember to check out the Liam Photography Podcast Facebook group. It is a private group and you must answer a security question to join, which is the name of the host of the show, myself, Liam. And I've also opened it up to allow you to give the name of a previous guest on the show to show that you are a listener. Once you're in the group, you are free to post your own original work. I'm also the admin of the Fujifilm GFX 50R group, which is the largest group for the 50R on Facebook. If you own or plan to own the 50R, you can request to join that group, but you do have to answer two security questions to join that group. You can find my work at liamphotography.net and follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at liamphotoatl. If you like abandoned buildings and history, you can find my projects at forgottenpiecesofgeorgia.com and forgottenpiecesofpennsylvania.com. All right, that's going to wrap up episode 315 of the Liam Photography Podcast. I want to thank all of my listeners once again for subscribing, rating, and reviewing in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you might be getting your podcast. Also wanted to remind you to stop by the Liam Photography YouTube channel, subscribe to the channel, watch the videos, like them, comment on them, share them out on social media, hit the little bell icon so you can be notified when new videos are released. There will be a new one coming out later on today, so you'll want to check that out. Also, do not forget to stop by the show notes page and enter the contest for your chance to win a platinum pod extreme flat tripod now the prize is being sponsored by platypod not the show just the prize for the contest and i also want to once again thank Susie pratt from gemini connect for being on the show this past thursday it was a fantastic episode and if you haven't given it a listen yet you need to go back and do so now she is a very talented and very 
wise and informative lady when it comes to photography and videography, especially travel photography. Her and her husband do quite a bit of that. So you're definitely going to want to check out that episode as well. All right, that's wrapping today up. We will see you all again on Thursday.